My name is Jamie Keach, and you're listening to the Resource Insider Podcast, where we talk to CEOs, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs in the mining and metals industry. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. Now, to start off, I'd like to give a shout out to our sponsor, Macmillan LLP, one of Canada's leading business law firms. Here at Capitalist Exploits, we use Macmillan uh, for everything we need in Canada. My lawyer is a gentleman named Roland Hurst. I've had a great experience working with him, and he's made my job much, much easier. So if you're looking for a business law firm within Canada, they also have offices in Hong Kong, please check out Macmillan. I can't recommend them more highly. Okay, now today on the podcast, we have a gentleman named Brian Pays Braga. Today, Brian is a partner at the Fiore Group here in Vancouver, but he has accomplished many, many, many things leading up to that. Most famously, he partnered with Frank Justra to found Lithium X, a company he became the CEO of, a lithium exploration company which he and his team sold earlier this year for $265 million. Before that, he was a partner at Jordan Capital, a brokerage firm here in Vancouver, but with offices also in Calgary and Columbia. And he sits on the board of Deep Green, a company focused on the development of underwater mineral resources. That's right. They're looking for mineral assets 4,000 meters uh, below the surface. And they're working with some world-class scientists and explorers to do that. We talk about it in this conversation. It's extremely interesting and something that I found just endlessly fascinating. In addition to that, Brian is on the board of Thunderbird Films, a studio creating awesome content uh, that's currently being sold to companies like Netflix and the likes of that. Now, this would be impressive in anyone's career, but what makes this particularly impressive for Brian is the fact that he is only 30 years old, which is crazy when you consider the number of things he's involved in. We talk a lot about the tactics and the strategies that Brian has used to really accelerate his career so much and has allowed him to achieve so much at such a young age. One of the things we really get into is mentorship. Um, How Brian, from a very young age, I believe 20 years old, very aggressively sought out mentors, engaged them, and I would say inspired them to take a leap of faith on him and most of whom he's eventually become partners with. It's very impressive, and it's a lot of very actionable advice for listeners that are looking to accelerate their careers, that are looking to start working on their own, or working to find um, more successful or more experienced partners uh, with which they can work with and can help take the projects that they're working on to the next level. We also spend a lot of time chatting about the importance of philanthropy and giving back, something that Brian credits Frank Joostra from teaching him. Brian today is involved in numerous philanthropic ventures, uh, probably most notably, and the one that stood out for me was a program he's been part of called Backpack Buddies. Now, this is based in Vancouver and the surrounding area, and it helps feed thousands of children 
uh, on the weekends who wouldn't typically have access to the kind of meals, uh, healthy, nutritious meals that one would hope and that a lot of us take for granted. So without further ado, I want to introduce Brian Page Braga. I had a really, really excellent conversation, and I can't possibly recommend it enough for anyone that's ever been interested in entrepreneurship, philanthropy, the mining industry, or really business in general, because he's got such a wide scope uh, of endeavors that he's involved in. And there are a lot of great takeaways, and I had a really excellent time talking to him. Here's Brian Pays Braga. Brian, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me, Jamie. So one of the reasons I have started this podcast is kind of as an excuse to what I would say scratch my own itch, uh, which is corner people that I know in the industry uh, that I've met, whether at functions or meetings or what have you, and ask a lot of questions I wanted to ask them for some time and would be purely inappropriate to corner them at a dinner and grill them for an hour. So you're one of those people. Um, I love it. You've done a lot of things over the last few years, and I'd love to dig into it and talk about what you're doing now. Let's do it. Okay. So give us first just a very brief intro to who you are and what you're doing today. Huh. Well, um, my name is Brian Pacebrega, and I'd say what I'm doing today is in the 30,000-foot view, um, enabling entrepreneurs, whether private or public, with uh, capital, strategy, um, vision, mission, um, and and really trying to advance the things that I believe in um, through through capital, through entrepreneurial expertise, um, and working with people that I want to work with, um, which has has been a, a, a fortunate thing for me. Um, and um, what that looks like is. Um, here at Fiore, uh, we've financed many companies, both private and public. Uh, we also have a lending business, and uh, we just try to uh, do our best at finding opportunities and being good allocators of, of capital. So I want to talk a lot about today about how you ended up as a partner at Fiore and all the steps leading up to that. But, you know, first thing for our audience, there's going to be a lot of people out there who are not necessarily from the investing side, uh, from the capital market side, but are, are, have a lot of experience in operations or in mining or in exploration. And, you know, I come from that background myself as an engineer. And when I first moved to Vancouver, uh, something I heard over and over again was people say, I'm doing deals. I'm looking at a deal. I'm doing deals. And truthfully, I had no idea what that meant or what a deal is or what it means to be looking at one. So this, I think, is going to be a topic of conversation as we go forward. So could you define what you think is typically meant when people say they're looking at deals or they're doing deals in this space? I'll speak to, to my experience yeah. of saying I'm doing deals. Um, so I, <laughs> as you said that, I'm reflecting on, on my uh, career and uh, that's a great point. That uh, well, it's no one knows what not no one necessarily knows what that means. Yeah, right away. I, I'd say when I put together a deal, again, whether private, public, alone, um, you're you're what I try to do is understand the needs of the other party, and 
what are my needs and try to find a, a common ground. So it's, it's, it can be a deal that you make with your significant other, with your mother, with your friend on where to meet and, and why, you know, it's, it's, it's basic stuff. Um, and of course you layer in some sophistication as, as, as you learn more about capital and, 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 and how capital works, but it's just meeting two individuals or two entities, uh, needs. And in our business in particular, what I mean by doing a deal, um, and I'd, I'd say maybe more for the public market investors and audience is trying to find the best, uh, vehicle, public, the public vehicle to, um, really structure a opportunity that we believe is is a good opportunity and give people the best chance to get exposure to it and make money from it because at the end of the day people allocate capital in the space it's very risky capital it's very hard to make things successful but when they work they're they're incredible um so um yeah it's it's uh, when when other people say i'm not sure what they mean but what what i look at in a deal is trying to meet the needs of two parties so when you were younger and you know, plotting out your career steps, is that something you were drawn towards this uh, capital markets financing entrepreneurship? Hundred percent arena. Hundred uh, percent. Well, you know, what exposure did you have early on that kind of pointed you towards that? And and, and the reason I ask now, you're from Vancouver. Yes. Uh, so you probably grew up seeing a lot of people working in the mining space or, or seeing that around town. A lot of I know where I grew up in the small town in Ontario. I didn't even know that world existed. What was it that sort of initially that you first saw when you were young, say in high school or, or earlier, that started to push you in that direction? Uh-huh. So it started very early on. So my, 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 my dad was the general manager of the Four Seasons Hotel. Four Seasons Hotels, actually Canadian brand, represented high quality, very expensive, um, but high quality, consistent, uh, you know, the list of, of, of great things in a great brand. So I naturally enjoyed, call it the finer things. And, mm-hmm. uh, but my parents always uh, drilled into me that we couldn't stay at, at these hotels unless my father had the position he did with, with the company. So I was always intrigued as to, you know, who can afford this kind of quality of life? It right. was interesting so, to so me. So you guys were getting it comped when you were traveling exactly. places. Exactly. Um, so, so, so that led me to maybe as a young child on reflection, being intrigued about high quality of life. Okay. Then growing up in Vancouver, um, actually growing up in, in West Vancouver, uh, I worked for a realtor as a teenager mm-hmm. and did odd jobs for him and did mail outs and a very good friend of mine still to this day. And what I realized, we did a waterfront mail out when I was, I would have been 15 or 16 years old. And most of the owners of those waterfront homes, which are the most expensive inherently in a, in a, in a uh, harbor city like like Vancouver, um, were called deal makers in this natural resource finance space, mostly natural resource finance space. Mm-hmm. So I was intrigued. I said, okay, well, you know, here's this background of me kind of understanding this quality of life and then working for a realtor mm-hmm. in very expensive real estate market, which right. has just gotten more expensive. And then most of the owners are 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 these deal makers. And I came across Frank Juicer's house. So I, I was aware of Frank Juicer. I actually went to sc- or I grew up in the same neighborhood, went to a neighboring school, but was, was a friend of Frank, uh, Frank's nephew, Frank Jr. And I just started reading up on, on Frank and started reading up on Endeavor at the time, which he was running uh, and what he had done at Yorkton. 
and um, what he'd done in Lionsgate Films and with Gold Corp and all these things. I was like, oh my gosh, this guy's, you know, this guy's the man. <laughs> layer in his philanthropic efforts and layer in who he knew and these parties he was throwing in small little Vancouver. He had President Clinton here and A-list celebrities. And I was like, this guy's awesome. Like, this is, I want to be like that. Yeah. And it literally started as I was a teenager. So I felt very fortunate to be in an environment where I had a front row seat to that. And I could actually understand, as you, you know, as you mentioned, plot out your career, you, I, I, I assessed, you know, what, what, what do I look for as, as professional success? Frank was that guy. So I literally used to drive by his house um, during uh, breaks of, of, of studying for my grade 12 exams, my provincial exams, and just kind of get inspired by, by that house. And I liked real estate and I'd worked for a realtor, so kind of all made sense mm-hmm. to me and clear my head from, from studying. So my journey of, of getting to where I am today subconsciously started when I was a teenager. It's crazy to say, but, but I, 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 it started then. And um, I'm sure we'll go into more, but that would be the, the, the genesis of it. And it just took 10 years to, to, to work towards the goal of being prepared to work with Frank. You know, what is it in particular that you think drew you to Frank? Was it the breadth of the things that he was involved in, the, the scale of them, you know, there are lots of people doing deals in Vancouver. Uh, there's lots of successful people doing deals. But something that has always struck me interesting about Frank Justra is not only the scale, but the, the breadth of the variety of things that he's Completely been able agree. to be successful in. What, was that something that was interesting to you, or were there other aspects when, from an early age? That was one for sure. Um, because I, from a young age, enjoyed doing lots of different things at once. You know, um, actually... The success of Lithium X was a lot of the team I had because I just inherently loved doing lots. For example, when I was a teenager, I worked not just one job, three jobs, Subway, Starbucks, and a, a small restaurant in West Van at the same time okay. because I just yeah. enjoyed doing lots. So I'd say naturally I was geared towards being inspired by a guy that had done lots. And I think what drives Frank and what does drive me where we have common um, – um, um, passion is just learning. Okay. Like learning actually drives a lot of our deal making, which in turn has driven some of our success. Um, just asking, not unlike you doing this, asking questions, learning about a different industry, challenging the norms. And, and I think that, that kind of that adolescent, um, drive to learn more is, is in both of us. I still see it in Frank today in his, in his sixties. So this kind of brings me to something I was going to ask about, and you know how how do you accomplish this learning? Typically, is it meeting interesting, uh, more expert people than you, and grilling them, and getting as much out of them as you can, and as much information? Is it reading? Is it uh, exposure to different people and places, or or, or more traditional and courses in university and, and that mm-hmm. sort of thing? I think it's different for everyone. Yeah. For me, um, it's been spending time, face to face time with with high achieving people mm. in the different industries they're in but i feel like i needed a calling card or a credibility like a lithium x success that allowed me to have more um frank or or no pun intended or blunt conversations with with people i, I felt as a younger uh broker uh no track record um 
it, it was hard because it always felt like when I, I wasn't prepared. I mean, I wasn't confident enough probably in myself either at the time to ask the right questions or to try to get what I wanted, you know, out of the conversation. Um, but also I think on the other side, um, I was wearing a hat where the really successful high achiever might have thought I wanted something from, you know, in, in every relationship, yeah. you, know, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's yeah. kind of like, it's, it's, it's a dynamic. But I think once you get to a level, whatever that level is, and work really hard to get there, then it becomes really uh, pretty just natural. And, and deals, as you refer to, you know, how deals work, well, they come together pretty naturally because there's needs for both sides, have the blunt conversation, and we can help each other great. If not, don't get caught up over it. It's all, it's all good. Don't take anything personally. And, you know, it's kind of all, it's, it's fine. And maintain a good reputation, and it'll come back around. And good people work with, with good people. I continue to see see that. So let's... Let's take a step back for a minute. Um, you have a sort of an inkling, a pretty strong inkling of what you want to do before high school is even out. You know, how do you, you know, how do you go about tackling that? To do the traditional route of finance degree and working at a bank as an analyst, or, or did you do something totally different? What was the route into into the, those relationships and, and those roles in the finance industry? Sure, and I, I have this conversation with a lot of actually my friends today. You know, at thirty, in a in a pretty tough city to, 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 to make it. You know, we live in Vancouver, one of the highest costs yeah. of living in the world. Real estate prices that are insane. And, and it's tough. And I have this conversation with a lot of my good friends from, from high school. I just got, I was lucky to know what I wanted to do early. So how did I get there? Um, it came with some um, personal um, things I had to overcome. And then actually work became an outlet for me and success became an outlet for me um, to, to have kind of self fulfillment, you know, as, as, as maybe cheesy as that sounds, but it gave me, um, immediate kind of satisfaction. And at the same time, as you say, plot out, I plotted out my goals very early on. They changed and I, and I, and I went back to them once a year, twice a year, but I kind of knew where I wanted to be. So how did I do that? I looked at people like Frank and plotted out their careers and I said, okay, how did he do it? So he went from being a broker to a CEO of a brokerage firm. Actually, the broker that hired Frank when he was 22, year old, 22 years old from Merrill Lynch also hired me when I was 20 at Jordan Capital. What was, uh, what was his name? Stuart Vorberg. Okay. An amazing, amazing mentor. Um, I was actually with him last night. A great, great man and a great teacher. So I think the, the, the power of a mentor um, is what's helped me because I've had many of them but as what's helped me maybe achieve things in a more condensed timeline than maybe some some others and and actually choosing a mentor a lot of people use that word I think but a mentor has really got to be selfless and uh Stu was very selfless with me early on in my my life um I think a lot of it is just psychologically driven where in his 60s, he's just less worried about his success. Looking and to give back to others. So totally. when you say selfless, what does that mean, actually? I think looking out for someone um, more than yourself, putting someone, or putting someone else's priorities alongside yours. And I think it's, it's easier said than done. Yeah. But I really felt that with Stu. And it's um, true. You do see differing relationships between older and younger yes. people. And, you know, some... Especially, I think older people who haven't reached the zenith of their career yet—they're looking at young people as a as a means to an end, yes. and an energy to 
to, to feed off of essentially. Totally. Yeah. And though, and that's not sustainable, right? It's never, it never is. No. Whenever you see that kind of feeding off of, um, that's not a, that's not a equitable relationship, but I, I'd say with, with Stu and then even with Frank, um, I was in, I was lucky to be in good hands where there wasn't that, um, I don't think that, um, disadvantage to me. It was mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm just going to use him. You know, that's, that's, an, that's not the right with, with, even with Frank, he provided credibility and capital that I would have never had on my own. And then I provided this, um, this different lens, you know, as right. younger guys, you know, all, all, a lot of the success that Frank and I've had is that, okay, Brian's got this different lens in the world. Brian and, and some you know, others around me that are very, very capable, smart guys. And then Frank's got this credibility and, and, and he's also, <laughs> he can understand trends as well as we kind of present them. And it's just one of those relationships where it works really well because he's got things I don't have and I've got things that he doesn't have. And these things, when they come together, sometimes work really well. So now going back, you met Stu at 22, you said? I was 20. 20. Stu, Stu and Frank worked together when Frank was 22. So, what? okay, how do you actually do this? And this is probably a conversation you have uh, with your friends, and this is definitely going to be a question that everyone listening to this is going to want me to ask, is that if you're a 20-year-old, you know, you're sitting at home, you probably haven't graduated university yet. and Dropped out. Dropped out of university? Yeah. Do you knock on the door and say, I want a job? Do you, you know, send a nice letter? Like... What are the, what advice would you give? And it sure. doesn't have to be specifically about you, but for a young person who wants to attract the interest of an older mentor or you know a position like that, that's not easy to fall into. How do you approach it in a way that is um, going to be beneficial to you, uh, but not really annoying as hell to the other person? Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> so knowledge just with Stu, I had the same approach when I wanted to work at Subway. Of, okay. all, of all places, which was across from my high school. I offered to work for free. I said, just let me try. Let me prove to you that I can be relevant and of value. Why did I do that? I have no idea. I don't know if someone gave me the idea. I don't, I don't remember where it came from. Same thing with Stu. I met Stu in the fall of 2008. I dropped out in uh, of University of Calgary as a finance degree, but not performing. You know, It wasn't an optimal environment for, for me. Mm-hmm. And... I met Stu through um, actually a wonderful uh, lady that was tutoring me for the securities course. And Stu had reached out to her and said, if you see anyone in your, in your courses that I should meet, you know, please let me know. And actually this lady used to work at Yorkton with Stu and Frank. Mm-hmm. And um, her name's Hazel. She's a, a lovely lady I'm still in touch with to this day. And she called Stu and said, hey, I've got someone for you to meet. And that was, that was me. And, and then Hazel called me and said, I've got I've got someone for you to meet. This is perfect. You know, he told me all about Frank. He hired Frank. So I wanted to meet Stu, and it took three months, but I didn't, because I didn't start till February 2009. But I just said to him, I said, just let me in. Just let me try. And I can tell you, I made $2,000 a month uh, pre-tax. And I just dropped out of university. And it was tough, but I, I, got, a, I got a seat at the table. And uh, it would have been within, a, within two years, I think it was just over a year, um, that uh, Stu and I became partners, and we built Jordan, which was um, a very small firm, and it wasn't without its challenges, uh, especially the market that we were in. But we built that uh, from we had around five to ten employees to over fifty, um, and uh, three offices. Uh, opened up an office in Calgary, opened up an office in Columbia, brought in some Colombian partners, and it was it was an amazing start for me 
And I just felt that the mentorship that Stu provided to me definitely changed the trajectory or the pace that my career went at. But it was just, you know, for any of the listeners that are, are, are saying, you know, how do I do it? Just be, be as real as you can be and offer nothing. Say, I, I, I'm gonna, you know, I can do this. And, and how I actually made some money to subsidize my life yeah. was I club promoted. I literally went, yes, (laughs) because I wanted to go out. I had to meet people to like build a book of business and uh, a few friends and I started a club club promotion business. And, you know, it was, and it's not, you know, it was sometimes uh, social suicide because we'd we'd throw parties and sometimes the parties wouldn't be good. And man, those were tough mornings, but that allowed me to go out. And get paid a little bit to 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 actually go out and and host a party and but it was tough two thousand bucks a month in this city pre tax was very tough. You know, a, an underlying element of you know the club promoting job, obviously the job that became Jordan and and everything else you've done since is sales uh, and the ability to sell yourself and a story and and the other people involved in that. You know. Would you say you had a natural inclination towards sales from a young age, or was it something you saw and be it Stu or Frank or someone else that you wanted to learn and emulate? You know, what, where do you think you've developed that success in, in that skill set? Never been asked that. That's a good question. I would say my, my gut response would be being 14 and being put on the floor of McDonald's, for example. I know it doesn't sound that crazy, but at 14, you're working with a bunch of adults. Yep. You're still a child. You're putting, I, I put myself in probably uncomfortable positions that was uh, naturally giving me confidence of dealing with people. Even before that, I babysat, you know, dealing with kids, having responsibility. Even before that, or in around, sorry, that, that age, I was, a, I was a referee for hockey. So in a position of, of, um, to command, you know, respect. And, and mm-hmm. I'd say that probably started it. Did I have a natural knack? I, I, I think people probably say, yeah, you know, I was maybe born with some of that, but I think it was refined at a very early age for me. So if we can unpack that a little bit, I guess it sounds to me like you associate one of the key abilities of sales or being good at sales is with confidence and totally. having sort of an underlying confidence to, to back up what you're saying. Do you think... How do you go from being, this is not an easy question, how do you go from being confident to compelling? Hmm. Because there are confident people that are not compelling, and there are probably some compelling, are there compelling people that aren't confident? That's, I don't know. (laughs) Good question. Um, So let me think about it from someone that I find confident or compelling. What's the difference for me? Um... Confident could also be without, um, I, I think of the word maybe a little more reckless than, than compelling. Compelling has an underlying background of, of logical information. Confident can be I'm emotionally um, triggering to, or, or moving towards a, uh, a, a yes to, mm-hmm. you know, to sales. The compelling nature is, okay, this, this person woman or, 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 or man has actually done the background and put together a logical plan that will deliver on whatever they're, they're convincing me of. Right. 
Um, so maybe it's partly the ability to communicate an idea and a, and a plan and a well thought out strategy, uh, eloquently or, or I guess in a compelling manner. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I, yes, that would be my gut response. That's a good question. The reason I ask about this is because, you know, I've, in this conversation and in other work you've done, you know, I see that you're a very good salesperson and, you know, you're at a young age and you're doing it at a level that's pretty unusual. Uh, and I just, I always wondered about what are the elements of a personality or a presentation that allows someone to consistently sell ideas? So on that point, the more times people put themselves in a position of being uncomfortable, the way stronger they become. Hmm. What do I mean by that? I remember early days, Jordan Capital, Stu was very supportive of me. I would travel around the world pitching institutional money managers I was, I had no purpose. So how old were you just uh, as a 21, two, three, four. So you're showing up in London and New York, London, Switzerland, Hong, uh, not Hong Kong, London, Switzerland, uh, uh, Geneva, Zurich, um, would be, it was mostly Europe because we were trying to open up a European, um, uh, a little bit more of a European business. And let's, let's think about what tools I had. I was in my early twenties. I was at a very small firm, Jordan. We were mostly retail. Uh, we didn't have research and I'm not, you know, we were just early days. I'm not taking mm-hmm. away from what Stu created, but it, it, we, I didn't have like, I didn't have Goldman Sachs business card. Let's put it that way. Right. I was a dropout. So logic tells you, you know, what are you doing? But I actually opened up some accounts because people would say, you know what? I'm going to give this guy a chance. I think showing up is so much of being successful, like way more than what it is you say. Cause at the end of the day, if you're considerate or conscious and you listen to the other person, you're going to learn more every time. And I think what drives confidence to take it one step back is not having a fear of failure. Okay. And I think that that's also a fine line between again, recklessness and, and considerate, uh, learning experiences. So I've never been that afraid of failure. I just haven't. And I've had spectacular blowups, spectacular as a broker, like multiple deals go to zero and, and I'm happy to talk about those because that taught me how to be better later on. But I was considerate to the process. I reflected and then moved, moved forward to try to be better. So let's, let's talk about failure for a second. Um, you know, what would you say is a failure you had an experience you had that, you know, maybe painful at the time, but set you up for success later in life that prepared you or taught you a lesson or, you know, maybe taught you not to do something again that down the road was actually made a meaningful difference. There, there, there's many, I mean, there, there's many, um, and I'd, I'd think, you know, really at, as a stockbroker during the downturn in 2011. So we had a great run from 2009, 2011, as you probably remember. Um, and, uh, just looking at the, the companies that we had invested in, as I looked at my account, clients' accounts, and really assessing many mistakes, you know, bull, bull market decisions, I call them. Um, and, you know, one, one in particular was an oil and gas company that took on mezzanine financing. Okay. Mezzanine financing is, is kind of sits, sits between equity, it does sit between equity and debt, and is a very high cost of capital. So understanding cost of capital was a really big lesson for me. And, and in our business, when we, when we assess um, a project's viability, usually it's determined by 
an IRR, net present value in IRR. And understanding that as simple as, you know, obviously IRR now has to sit above your cost of capital. Mm -hmm. And what transpired in this oil and gas company was uh, too much shale production came on, shale uh, and, the, and the price came on, and other factors drove, drove the price down. And um, the company's cost of capital is way too high. And it went bankrupt. Bankrupt. Completely bankrupt. I worked on that company for a long time. So as I experienced that, taking it into my lithium X, X experience, I didn't want to obviously take on any sort of debt or mezzanine before I really had a handle on, on the project. Right. And I'd add a little bit more to, to, to that. That company in particular had an opportunity to raise lots of equity at great valuations when everything was, was, was rocking. And they turned it down in favor of this. Correct, because they didn't want to dilute. So um, on reflection, it was clearly it was, the wrong, it, was, it was the wrong decision at the time. But in our business, you got to be really careful of how you finance a project that's so capital intensive and just relying on equity or debt or, or a royalty stream uh, I think as a CEO, we ought to be looking for other solutions. Uh, we have the responsibility to look at other solutions um, and really be be focused on project IRR and your cost of capital. And that's the magic and, and the art of our business and finding and sensing the windows of when the equity markets are open. You can raise ample amounts of capital because you're always going to need more capital, unfortunately, in our yeah. capital-intensive business and just getting the groove of it. And, and is there a science to it? There's not. It's just... Like a hockey player, the more you play hockey, the better you get, the better you understand the game. Your skills are better. And I've been doing this now for 10 years, and I love it. I'm passionate about our business. You just, you're on the ice more, and you figure out, you know, the, 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 the waves. And right now, we're in a very tough equity market. So um, anyways, I'm, 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 I'm digressing. But I'd say in aggregate, my failures, the result was Lithium X. And we got fortunate on many ways, but on, on many things with Lithium X in terms of timing and everything. But I'm very proud of that of that company and, and, and what we what we did there. For you know, for the people that there's probably a lot of people right now who are experiencing uh, failures or sort of downsides in their companies or in their accounts or with their clients in our business right now. How so? You know, when you had that oil and gas company, you were a broker. Uh, how do you manage, you know, personally the fallout of that? I mean, psychologically, that can't be easy. And additionally, you've got a lot of clients that are going to be probably not thrilled about losing that capital. How do you manage that, you know, personally and keep yourself up, and also keep your clients on side so that they want to keep working with you and understanding that, you know what went wrong and why it's not going to happen again and, and all the other things you need to be walking people through when they've trusted you with money. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, how I handled it, and I had a mentor uh, in Stu, but um, what we started every conversation with when a client would open an account was really ensure that they knew we weren't wealth managers, that we were handling 100% of their speculative money. Mm. Does it make it any easier when you lose them the money? No. <laughs> <laughs> no one likes to lose money. Yeah. But I think we came across the table with a, 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 conscious, that, a conscious effort that, that both parties understood that this was very high-risk capital. Right. Didn't make it any easier, okay? But what I would say to you and what I would say to um, many investment advisors that 
maybe they handle speculative capital, even even during a downturn of, of the overall uh, equity markets, is don't be afraid of having the tough conversations. Uh, don't run away. Don't be unavailable. People are going to get emotional. They're going to, a lot of people like to blame. And um, you just got to have those tough conversations. And um, I've got a few in particular in my mind that, that as you asked that question, but I can tell you that most, if not all the people that were my, my clients, um, at the end of the day, understood the risks and through some emotional <laughs> tough conversations, I think respected me for having those tough conversations and respected our industry more that it's, t- it's a tough industry. And I can tell you even, um, today, I mean, all of our accounts are, you know, it, it's, it's hard out there with everything that's happening. But I, I'd say to you that, um, in my experience, these waves, they, they, they do come and go and we learn, we all learn more each cycle and whether it's small cap markets or the Dow, um, much larger markets, they're cycles. Our markets are all driven by greed and fear. That's the, and that's been forever and it will be forever. And right now, especially in, in Canada, um, we're in a pretty, pretty fear driven market mm-hmm. uh, for many reasons. You know, there's been multiple bubbles that have just happened late cycle events that continue to happen and will continue to happen through these economic cycles. And, um, I think that through this time, it's more important to do self-reflection and self-learning than it is to just blame and be emotional. Um, you really try to arm yourself with more information, whoever you are, whether you're a retail investor, an investment advisor, a CEO, we ought to all just learn more. Yeah. Are there any sort of tricks or how do we say, or maybe tactics or habits you might have when you're feeling, you know, you're, you've had a failure, you've had a setback, you want to sort of keep your momentum going and, you know, resist the urge to go hide away under a rock somewhere. Like, is there anything you've done consistently that's helped you get out of a funk or get out of a setback and move forward? I, I can tell you, when I started Lithium X, it was probably the worst time or the worst bear market that many people have seen. I think Frank would tell you um, that it was the worst bear market that he's ever experienced, ever, because it was really a four-year bear yeah. market, four or five years. Um, many young guys in our position left the industry. I actually took a, 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 a time away from the industry as well for five or six months. It was really tough, but those are the best times because no one's doing anything. Mm-hmm. So... So what is, the, what is the simple, I don't know what the simple answer is, but the worst of times are actually the best of times. I, I got so much support and attention with Lithium X when it started because there was really no other game in town. Mm-hmm. And not in town, like really in, in the country almost, it seemed like in the small cap space. And the same opportunity will happen again. So during the worst of times, there's very little competition. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about... What made you decide to transition from being a broker, uh, running Jordan, to being the CEO of an exploration lithium company? Um, Obviously, you'd seen and been exposed to many, many deals. Uh, You've probably seen a few succeed and a lot not succeed. That's, it's hard to say, but I would say it's a riskier business and you're putting a lot more eggs in one basket that way. What, uh, What pushed you over that edge? I think my experience in uh, whether it was at Jordan or where I was right after at Intrinsic Capital, um, 
it was <laughs> hearing a lot of CEOs, financing a lot of CEOs, and through some of the tough experiences, just saying, you know what, I, I should just give this a try. Taking responsibility into my own hands. I probably wasn't confident enough or ready. I wasn't through my early 20s. But then when Lithium X and the idea and the concept came around, I was like, no, I, I can do this. So and actually, you, you were about 27 at that time. Yes, is that right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So what was it? I don't know if it was, you know, the universe just making that happen. But I, I was just ready to take on the responsibility of being a fiduciary. And I, I maybe some of it was I was a little bit tired of, of financing lots of different companies, looking at what they were doing and saying, oh, you know what, maybe I can do it better probably out of some naivety <laughs> and that's why I surrounded myself with, I tried to surround myself with the best people I could. Um, but I think it was just out of, I was ready to be responsible as a CEO of a public company and it was a feeling, it was a gut feel. What was the moment you decided that lithium was the way to go? Uh, it would have been mid 2015 so we, we ended up going public November 30th, 2015. Mm -hmm. uh, it would have been kind of late spring, early summer. And uh, I ran into um, actually a gentleman um, that I went to school with his kids, a prospector named Clive Ashworth, who has been a prospector for decades. Um, and he said, you know, have you looked at this, this lithium market? And I was actually at the time, I wasn't even in, really in the markets. I had some investments, but I wasn't even really in the markets. I was taking a breather myself. And, um, and he's like, take a look at pure energy. And at the time pure energy was like this anomaly in the venture space that was getting real traction. And they had adjacent land to the only producing lithium mine in North America, which was, which was run by Albemarle. Um, and I said, I haven't really, but then Lucas Cahill and I, who Lucas has worked with me for, for about five years now, five, six years. And I said, Hey, can you take a look at, you know, this pure energy, take a look at this lithium space and just do some due diligence, do some work on it. And what we came up with, what really he came up with in, through the interpretation of, of the information, it was like, this, this, is, this is real. And, and being this, this theme is real. And this electric vehicle trend is real. And the consumer electronics and smartphones, very real. So you had a bunch of demand drivers um, pushing, pushing pricing. And you didn't have, what I'd notice is, is the market was so tough you had some lithium public companies that had some great assets, but I, I don't I don't think I think people were so beat up, CEOs were so beat up that it almost just needed to be packaged up and presented a little bit more um, less just natural resource project level, more high level theme. Right. And when I reflect on the mission of Lithium X was, was to help wean the world off fossil fuels. As grand as that sounds, but it was resonating with more people than just I have a project in a jurisdiction and it has this many tons or this many pounds or this many ounces. That's not an emotional story. That's not a cult-like following. Mm. If you look at any other industry or other brand that has done really well. So it was a, it was a process of three or four or five months of understanding the theme, assessing the project, which Clive had in Nevada, which as I drove into uh, Nevada, uh, in Clayton Valley in, um, early September 2015, 
you could see a, a, a mine, you should see an operating mine, yep. and he had ground around it. So, you know, it's very easy for someone to understand all the infrastructure's here, there's a, there's a mine here, it's operating, and someone's got ground around it. Pretty simple in our business, right? Mm -hmm. So people could understand. It was in a good jurisdiction. It was a commodity that we thought was going was gonna to do really well. And what ended up happening is lithium went from about $5,000 a ton. That, that fall started to move and, and went over $20,000 a ton during the, during the, the uh, evolution of, of Lithium X. So what was it? It was a combination of this, the skills I had learned from financing companies, understanding structure, putting together a, a, uh, a plan, a business, a business plan, a PowerPoint that Frank got behind. Um, and then putting together a team and Paul Matizic and really everything came after Paul in terms of the team. And we had a company and we started with a $3 million market cap and raised one point, I think it was 1.7, 1.6, $1.7 million. So it was a super attractive entry price. And then, you know, the rest is, 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 is history, but. Okay. People can't see this, but I'm writing down a whole bunch of notes right now, fairly furiously, because there's about 10 things I want to ask you about that. So. Where to start? So, I want to start with. Okay, yeah. What big? How big a role do you think that thematic narrative, painting around the lithium space and the EVs, played in your ability to attract attention to, and finance this, uh, you know, this vehicle? And the reason I ask that is because, I see a lot of companies either ignore that or do it very poorly. Um, you know, they spend. 50 slides with different uh, charts on gold slides and this and that in history. And, you know, the person I think of that does that well is Robert Friedland. 100%. Every time I see him present, I just think, Jesus Christ, I need <laughs> copper, I need platinum, and I need it now. And obviously, Ivanhoe is the only way to do it. Um, but he, totally. he builds this incredible narrative around why you need what he has and why what he has is the only way to have that. Um, was that any sort of inspiration for you when you were building the story of lithium X and, and did you find that that was that played a big role in it? That's a long question. So I'm going to try to answer that. So did Friedland play a big role um, in the way that he educates investors? Yes. He yeah. did. Yeah, he did. I mean, I've, I've only met him. I don't, I've met him handshake once or twice, but reading the book, the big score, I don't know if you've read that. I've read that three times. Yeah. It's the best. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> That really motivated me as to uh, how he approaches things and, and, and you know, what an incredible success story he is. So, yes. The answer is yes. I think what also helped with Lithium X's story was um, the cult-like – I talk about the cult-like following um, that Tesla has and Elon Musk has. We were just kind of in that wave. You know, he kind of built that and, and, and that, that wind tunnel, and it was – as, as I, as I assess and as, as Lucas and I assess the opportunity and Frank, part of the reason why Frank invested in it is he had a Tesla and he loved it. So you can't buy that, that cult like following. And I was, I was at a program in, um, at Harvard in, in September and we did a lot of case, case studies every day, multiple case studies. And so much of the success of brands is this cult like following. So what did that lead to from a perspective of the natural resource business? That call like following allowed us to gain traction with shareholders. And as you said, here's this, here's this theme and we're the only game in town. Now, that was for me to try to convince people of. 
That then allowed our price to go up and for us to raise cheaper cost of capital against our competitors, advance our project much faster. And when people say, oh, that's so expensive, that's like a win for me as a CEO. That means I'm able to raise capital at more competitive um, um, dilution to my competitors and in a space that I think is so inefficient in terms of valuations. You have amazing assets sitting in companies that have no market cap. You can have okay assets seeing companies with huge market cap. <laughs> so there's profits to be made and major profits to be made. So it's a matter of um, getting into that, I think, into that, into that wind tunnel, assessing it from a top-down approach. There's inf- lots of information out there. Assess what the, where the world's going, where capital's flowing, get into it, get a great asset, and then you've just got to really preach this simple vision that is a theme and by the end of the presentation, say, as you said about, about uh, Robert Friedland, this is the only way to play it. And, and that's, the, I think, just an intelligent. For me, it's worked to be an intelligent shareholder acquisition strategy, if that's what you want to, you know, that's what I call it. Is the shareholders are, are, are who I work for every day as a, pub, as a, as a CEO. They're my, they're my clients. And I've got to work really hard for them. And I've got to convince them through a voting system, which is the public markets every day, that I'm going to get them more value the next day. And um, that's the way I, I approached it. Lithium X was the start of at least your um, public relationship with Frank Zustra. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that happen? How did you get him to throw his weight and, and capital behind that deal? Um, it was simpler than I thought it would be um, and scarier than I thought it would be. So remember I mentioned that I'd looked up to him since I was a teenager uh, I'd met him a few times, but didn't want to approach him. And Stuart offered to me many times, do you want to meet Frank? I don't know why, but I just said, no, I don't want to be another person just asking him for a favor. Didn't want to be that guy. And I know what I had learned from successful people is there's a lot of people that are always asking something of them. They're pulling all these directions. I don't want to be that guy. So Frank and I um, built a friendship first. So I was introduced to Frank through uh, um, an assistant that, that had worked with me for uh, a long time, an amazing um, uh, assistant to me, and she knew I really looked up to Frank. She set up the introduction, and we just became friends. So we, you know, hung, hang out together. Um, we'd uh, we went on a couple trips. With, with, he's got a group of friends that he likes to do really cool trips with. You know, he's nice enough to to include me, and we were just friends. And the markets were dead. This was late 2014, early 2015. And then uh, it wasn't until we were actually in Greece. There's a, there was a group of us, and I uh, I had I was ready to, to pitch him, and I pitched him, and literally right away he said, "Yeah, let's do it." Now, was this something you had thought out and perfected nope. in preparation, nope. or were you guys having drinks around the table and you said, "I've got this great idea"? I think it was breakfast, and I I, I walked him through Pure Energy. I said, "Hey, you know, look at what is happening here. This, there's something more happening than meets the eye." They're getting real traction with U.S. investors. You could see it. And I said, hey, I, I, I've got a contact with the, with the same prospector that, that sold his properties to Pure. I think we can do something. And then that was in August 2015. And it was September 2015 that I flew down to Nevada, to Vegas, drove to Clayton Valley, met with Clive, uh, the prospector, and, and made the deal happen. And um, it was easier than I thought, though, because I think we had built a – so there was trust. We built a friendship. He had a Tesla. He understood what I was presenting. Obviously, Frank has done so many deals. He could see that Pure Energy, something was happening. 
And it just kind of made sense. And, and I can tell you that that was the most exciting I've ever <laughs> felt, or the most excited I've ever felt, and the most scared I've ever felt. Because I was like, I can't screw this up. Was there like a, oh shit moment, now I have to run a company? I'm 27 majorly, years old. Majorly. And, yeah. it, was like, it was like major adrenaline. I was like, oh my God, he just said yes. But then I remember <laughs> going to the house and I was like, oh my God, he just said yes. You know? And yeah, I mean, it... it it uh, it drove me in ways I probably never thought I could be driven. So what was the time frame from you know that breakfast to Lithium X goes public on the TSXV? Uh, it was November thirtieth, so it would have been mid August. I think we were in Greece, so it was three three months. It's a pretty quick turnaround. Yeah, I was ready to go. Now let's talk about the and I believe you correct me on this. I believe it was just over two years later the sale of Lithium X. Um, sale was in March this year, March this year. So yeah, what, I know. So is it time fly? So it, that, it was announced last year. So was that three years from, yeah, it was, uh, it was, yeah, about two and a half years. Well, we went public November 30th and we announced the sale of 2015. We announced yeah. the sale in de- mid December, 2017 okay. and then closed right after. So yeah, so two and a half, three years, two and a half years later. Yeah. You sell at the MX. Now that wasn't an easy process necessarily. There were delays. There was <laughs> questions about when and how the money would get there. Can totally you, yeah. can you walk listeners to, through what happened there and how you managed it? And I mean, I know personally you were taking flack from all corners of the internet. How did, how did that go down, and how did you deal with it? So I didn't sell Lithium X. I had an incredible team, and I and I do, I keep saying that because. There's no way Lithium X would have had the result it did. And maybe we should take a moment to talk about building that team. Sure. And particularly, uh, you said mentioned before, Paul Matizic and, yep. and the role he played in, yes. in helping put this together. And Paul was more front-facing. And there was, there was, there was a, I, I always say, there's a small village that helps make these companies, anything I think, successful, actually. So <laughs> um, I would say what, what I did fundamentally or philosophically in building Lithium X was try to surround myself with the best people I could at what they were good at. So think Paul Matizic, a guy that's continued to drive and and successfully sell companies um, in the natural resource space, which is a very difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. As a CFO, uh, Dan Krisnick was the first CFO for, uh, for Lithium X, who's a very successful entrepreneur uh, in the public markets now. He was awesome for a couple of years. And then Bassam Mubarak, who's been... Paul's CFO, Paul Matizic's CFO, uh, before was a great closing CFO. Uh, Will Randall on the project. He's Argentine. He had worked on the project for I'm going to get this wrong, but I think almost ten years um, now, um, and knew the space, knew the people, um, and, and I could, the list could go on 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 just arming Lithium X and our shareholders with the best people at what they what they did, and I was just the the leader of that or the aggregator of that. Um, and I think about like a, like a hockey team, you know, here in Canada, you've got goal scorers, you've got defensemen, you've got a goalie, you've got to find all those parameters for, or what I had to find was all those parameters to, to a successful team. And was that the team, uh, you know, besides, uh, changing up the CFO at one point, the team you started with from the get go? Yes, it was. So the yeah. reason, the reason I asked that is I've thought about this a lot lately, um, there's like a JP Morgan quote, and I don't remember it exactly. I'm going to butcher it. But it's essentially like you, 
however things are going to work out is determined in the beginning. And you've sort of got one shot to structure things to get it right. And then by the time it's launched, it's already done. And, you know, did you and Paul and Frank and the other gentlemen and, and ladies potentially involved sit down and really plan out what you wanted to see happen over the preceding several years with yeah. Lithium X? I'm thinking as you asked that question, yes. I think I think we had a pretty – yeah, we did. We had a very buttoned-down strategy. It was get out there, get our project, go find better projects, continue to high-grade, raise more money, and become the best you – know, I call it, kept saying go-to lithium name for anyone that wanted exposure to lithium. Because remember, lithium at the time – or lithium still today, it's very tough to get direct exposure because it's not traded on, on the LME or the CBOE. So – it was, uh, and we just stuck to that. And what we did was continue to high grade the assets. And we had other very ambitious plans in place. It just um, was, we felt the right thing to do at the time was sell the company. And I, maybe I want to go through that a little bit because I think your listeners uh, will um, appreciate what, what happened during the sale, if you don't mind. Please, yeah. So, and this was a lot of uh, um, the the fortunate position that Lithium X that I was in, that Lithium X and our shareholders were in was having a guy like Paul Matizic and Bassam who were very experienced in selling companies. So with an overseas purchaser, not just Chinese, with an overseas purchaser, um, there's always risks and, and there's capital control risks and there's um, many other layers that I learned through the process that you have to be cognizant of. So when we started negotiations with NextView, um, and Tibet Summit, who are their purchasers. Um, very early on, I remember Paul just really setting the stage to say, we got to set the stage for this, for these discussions. Because it's, it's funny, especially during that time, there was many potential suitors. Um, it was, it was the, the hot thing. And um, I think what Paul and Bassam did for me, and, and our, actually our attorney, John Anderson at Steichman, who is incredible, um, really assess like any business prospects, prospects of business. And as a younger CEO, I could have probably spent a lot of my time, you know, wasting time. Whereas experience allows you to really be more effective with your time. So with NextView, we set up front with, with the bankers that represented them, which was Credit Suisse. Break fees are important. So I think, you know, it was something that was very um, uh, uh, disclosed to everyone as we were going through our tougher times near the end is there was a $20 million reverse break fee on a $265 million transaction. That's not normal, yeah. you know? Um, but what did it do? It gave uh, deal certainty and uh, deal commitment for, for, for the buyer. Um, and it was something really important that they would lose if, if they didn't close. Um, and, and that what led to the three weeks that were really tough for me <laughs> from February 14th of 2018 of this year to March 8th, which serendipitously was actually my 30th birthday, if you can imagine that. Okay. Um, that was really tough. But I, I felt through all that time, which was actually Chinese New Year, which was a lot of the mis- or our lack of communication between buyer and, and, and us, and just trying to get through... Um, that time, but the buyers never, never wobbled. They were there the entire time. And although there was some communication issues, whether it's language, Chinese New Year, um, and we just tried to do the best we could with the information we had uh, until closing, because the effective date we thought was February 14th, didn't end up closing, or the money didn't end up coming in till, till March 8th. And I think the best thing we did was step in and buy stock as insiders to... Mm 
regain confidence in the market because our, our, our effective sale price was two sixty one a share. We were trading around two dollars and forty to two dollars and fifty cents coming into February fourteenth. And then I, I think it traded as low as a dollar seventy something one day. And um, we actually got IROC called yeah. and, and said, you know, and I, I think it was it was IROC that halted, uh, but the regulators halted the stock. And and we just said, you know, we've got to and actually I said, we've got to as management as leaders put our money where our mouth is there's no better way to to settle things down um and our attorney was very supportive of that paul was supportive of that frank was supportive of that basam was and that's when i think things really changed in the market the stock ended up closing that day i think around 220 a share and you know we, we, we closed. We closed the transaction. But that was a really tough few weeks for me. Was that a hard decision for you to put no. the money in? Or, nope. I mean, no. It I, felt right. And I remember I remember it happening, and I remember reading about it and thinking, like, oh, that's a, not a bold move, but, like, that's a strong move. That's a, a very reassuring thing to see. And obviously it's the, what, the stock responded to that. It did. And it's what – and, you know, the outcome was great. The outcome couldn't have been good, too. But I thought at the end of the day, what would I – What's the easiest way to communicate with all the shareholders, the entire marketplace, yeah. all the media stuff, as you mentioned, what, that was happening, that was calling it, you know, this isn't going to happen. And it wasn't, you know, yeah. everything from newspapers to blogs. It, it, was, it, was, it was all across the board. It was like, everyone wants me to fail. And it's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to persevere. I'm going to get through this. And, so and not everyone. I should say many people, yeah. but my real supporters and our real supporters to the company at the end of the day wanted this this transaction to succeed because it was the right transaction for our shareholders and and we were not going to stop until that happened. So how does this go down? Are you uh, sitting at home about to blow out the candles and then the phone rings and you hear that it's gone through? Or? No, I got a text message <laughs> in our modern uh, modern way of communication. I was in London and I got a text message from Bassam, uh, myself, Paul, Matizic, and Bassam were on a, on a, on a group chat. Yeah. And uh, he said, we got the money, boys. Computer share just called. Um, and, uh, and this is your was, birthday? You're turning this 30 my, years This is my old, 30th right? birthday. No <laughs> word of a lie. So I, I've, I've lived a very fortunate life at times, too. I've gone through a lot of adversity, but I've lived a very fortunate life. And that was professionally the most euphoric moment of my life. Yeah. Professionally. How has running a mining company, or rather an exploration company, changed your view of the industry compared to when you were a broker because wow. you fill a bit of a hybrid role right now um and i'm wondering how each of those experiences influenced how you look at projects how you look at deals management teams how you make decisions how you allocate your own capital it's not an easy well, question no it's not and i'm still learning but i would say to you that what what has given me the ability to have um, clarity today or more clarity and be a, 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 a good capital partner to, to anyone and a capital steward of my own, of my own money. And, and um, I think it's just wearing all these different roles, as I call in this ecosystem. At the end of the day, now I'm a capital provider. Me and my partners are capital providers, whether it's equity or, 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 or debt. And wearing the hat of a broker or as a as a exempt market dealer kind of investment banker role in, in in our world to being a private equity provider of capital to many different businesses i've really just learned along the way and just having i guess the, the answer is having having the experience of being on all sides of the table 
is what's given me the ability to actually try to, the art of the deal is actually just understanding everyone's perspective and everyone's position. And I've just been at every, I think I've been at, other than being a lawyer or an accountant, I feel like I've worn every hat many times. Broker, investment banking, merchant banking, except market dealer, CEO, board member, um, you know, that, that's what's made me who an aggregate who I am today and how I can continue to make deals happen because I'm trying to assess everyone's position. And I've been there and I can sit across from someone and say, Hey, I understand what you're going through. I've been there. Um, and I think the best deals happen. You know, I, I, I don't, I'm not a believer that the best deals when everyone walks away feeling happy. Cause that's not possible. I actually feel the best deals are when everyone feels like they've walked away and left something on the table. Really? hundred percent. When someone walks away happy, that means someone else has it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it's allowed me to probably do more deal, the more velocity in deals, um, and just be a little more pragmatic about things. So I have to ask, did you feel like you left something on the table with lithium X? <laughs> Long term? Yes. Mm. And, 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 and what I mean by that is that once built is an incredible, I believe an incredible asset over the long term. in, the cycles that we're in, I mean, it doesn't, you know, you can look at the, the universe, the universe is down like over 50% for mm-hmm. sure. The universe being the, all the small cap developers, um, because the lithium prices come down because more projects have gone financed and it's a cycle. Um, but I'd say over the long term, it, it was, it, it was a cre- incredible, it is an incredible asset. Um, and, and the lithium business over the long term, unless something comes in and substitutes the, um, what a battery is today, which it could, technology is moving at amazing paces. L- lithium, I think, is a great business to be in over the long term. And, and the other thing to layer in is Argentina. You know, we got very fortunate in our timing in Argentina. And notoriously, that country goes through very harsh cycles. And we're seeing the yeah. downturn today. Um, so uh, that was another layer of our decision um, was, you know, where's Argentina go? And Paul and Bassam had a lot of experience down there, and Will, of course, uh, Randall. Um, and uh, so it's not, it's not simple, but I think over the long term, it was, a, it was a great asset. And I think that over the long term, it'll provide a lot of value for the buyers, if they so choose to, to build. I want to shift the conversation now um, to two things, uh, and they're related. The first is predicting the future. And the second is what you guys are working on now at Fiore. Uh, And I'll start with predicting the future. Um, And many listeners will know this, that uh, Frank has a stunning reputation for being able to predict and capitalize on trends um, before they happen or as they're happening. You had a similar experience with Lithium X. What do you think it is, uh, having worked closely first as a a mentee and then later as a partner of Frank, um, that has allowed him to be so good at catching these things seemingly before anyone else. And what have you learned there and how are you applying that to the focus of Fiore going forward? I I would say what I've seen in Frank's, um, call it his edge, is, um, as I mentioned earlier, his passion to learn always reading, always talking to people. And his access to international networks is second to none. And I think a lot of that has actually come from 
a great place, which has been his philanthropic efforts. Those philanthropic efforts, he's told me many times, have opened up doors for him um, that I don't think many people have access to in terms of the brightest, um, most you know, powerful minds in, 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 in the world. And I think to predict trends is, is reading and learning and having a passion to do that and then knowing where to go with the Rolodex that you have. So I think he's, he's been able to just naturally master that. So when there's a great, um, super high growth, great margin business that it, you know, there's lacks competition at the beginning of any cycle, that's when you have abnormal, uh, returns. Um, and, and and I, and I think it's layering in that, that strategy. I think, I think for me, the electric vehicle trend was, was, was pretty obvious. You know, you just had to, you just had to look for it. And then we had to put it into, put, put that thesis into a, into a a public, in our world, into a public company that had the right share structure, had the right team, had the right asset and all these things we, we, you know, we all look at and then execute on a strategy. So, but, but actually the, the first, like first inning of that is I think, reading and, and learning about the world and when reading international newspapers, which, you know, I, I, I do every morning and then knowing what to do when you, when you have a thesis, um, and then utilizing the ecosystem that we have here in Canada, uh, to, to successfully achieve capital, um, um, uh, into, into that opportunity and then just business one one like I said, build a team and, and execute on a plan and stick to it. And I think that's where you have abnormal success. Yeah. I mean, it's rare that, I mean, there are very good operators and company builders in the world. And then there's, there's lots of macro thinkers and visionary types. I think it is rare to have someone that's able to do both. That's able to have an idea or, or see something before it's immediately obvious and then find the way to take advantage of that, I suppose. I agree. And, And I would just add though, especially maybe for some of the younger listeners, you don't have to invent a computer to really like, you know, it's simpler, I think, than maybe people think it is. Well, that brings me to my, one of my questions for you. And I think what is bad advice that you see consistently given to people that want to be entrepreneurs, want to be playing Mm -hmm. in capital markets? You know, you probably have gotten advice from a lot of people uh, oh, yeah. over the years. What are some consistently wrong things that you hear people saying? And that, I think that might go to what you're saying sure. right now. Um, I don't know if this can answer your question, but my experience in, in dealing with a lot of um, uh, people, being employees, partners, consultants, investment bankers, entrepreneurs, um, and the difference of like a Frank is I think the bad advice or the inherent feeling sometimes is, um, that a pie is only so big and you've got to kind of fight over it or, or, or not fight over it, but, um, that is finite. I think the way that Frank works is in a, in his mind works is in abundance. So what, what, what do I mean by that? You don't need to be the only, like when we had lithium X, if we were the only company that was public, th- we wouldn't have had the wave that we did in the market capitalization appreciation. 
um, that we did because we had so many people speaking to the same theme. Right. So what I and even when I was you know I mentioned that when I was at Harvard like Coke and Pepsi Coke needed Pepsi Pepsi needed Coke it's not like either of them were the inventors of soda and and so when entrepreneurs are thinking oh you know like oh I wish I just came up with that invention or that idea I don't think that's right I think you've got to get into a space and what's worked for me is get into a space that's that's big and can get bigger and. Even I, you know, I, I love what you know what Facebook's done, Mark Zuckerberg, and he's really he had a he had a social media platform, but then he's done something that a lot of companies do here in Canada is he's now acquired a, many different companies, whether it's WhatsApp or Instagram, and he's now built the social media juggernaut. Mm-hmm. So he went from one one product to many products, and his mission is overlying trying to connect the world so I, i'm diverting a bit but i i just think that the bad advice is um oh you know like it's almost it's unachievable oh yeah i know that's already done it's like well no if a market's big enough and you think you can gain market share by however you're approaching it you just got to go do it you know there's so many more reasons why not to do something but if you've got a plan you just got to go and try it and, and back up your plan with data points, and but you just got to go do it. And 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 I think the, the 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 doing part of it is is the most important thing. And and then surround yourself with smart people. Uh, the advice that has been tough for me is, oh yeah, you know it's it's not like it's not possible. No, you know it, it's it's it, it's not a it's a, it's smaller. I think thinking where Frank is, the pie is so big. I'd rather have a smaller sliver of a massive pie than. Lots of nothing. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that's been the big shift for me in, in my thinking. How do you cultivate that sort of big, audacious thinking, those big goals? You know, as I say this, as you're saying this, I think about something that you and Fiore are working on right now, which is your company, Deep Green. Yes. I mean, I look at that as an equivalent of like the Google moonshots. It's hard. It's challenging. No one's ever done it before. But... If, it's, if you pull it off, it completely revolutionizes not only the mining space, but the entire world and how we acquire metals, how uh, we address energy, everything. Where do you, I mean, where do you get the audacity <laughs> to go after a game-changing move like that, which yeah. is going to be challenging and expensive and, and yeah. all sorts of things? Yeah, many things. So, yeah. And maybe give a try. second uh, to sp- explain what Deep Green is. Sure. Yeah. So, so Deep Green's mission um, is to become the largest and most respected natural resource company in the world. Okay, how do they do that? Uh, the company does that by already having um, the largest nickel copper cobalt deposit, uh, which is around 900 million tons of seven percent copper equivalent. The challenge of it is it's 4,000 meters under the, uh, <laughs> the surface of the ocean. I laugh as I say that. But, but, wh- but why did we put our capital and our reputation and our money – or sorry, money – and, and uh, I'm on the board um, – behind it? If you line up – what we did is all the problems with extracting natural resources from the planet. And you think about um, the different stakeholders – not just the shareholders that are there for profit, but local communities, um, jurisdictional risk, um, a large supply, 
environmental issues. Um, and you and you look at a deposit that's in the middle of a jungle, for example, um, or very you know hard to get at, very remote, and you think of the disruption that occurs to the planet, to communities, to all these different stakeholders. When we saw Deep Green, we're like, this has actually a lot of the solutions to problems. And so why is that? Well, it's in the middle of the ocean. There's still going to be a cause of an, a cause and effect that we're probably not fully aware of yet, but we need to we need to look at that. But these these nodules, all this tonnage, all this all this mineral wealth, sits in little like golf ball sized nodules at the bottom of the ocean. So logically, and I'm not an engineer like you are, and I'm not educated um, to the extent of 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 being able to comment exactly on what the cause and effect will be down there. But naturally, I say as a trade off, I think hoovering up nodules at the bottom of the ocean already being on the ocean where it's much easier to to move this metal as opposed to trucking mm. trains you know getting everything to seaborne is where actually the economies of scale fit in sure. like yeah, everything yeah. else is very expensive very damaging so get it onto i envision a electric powered ship maybe even some autonomous vehicles, utilizing some of this great technology that is already out there. And again, just dream with me for a second, that you, you, you actually utilize a lot of these great technologies that have been built in other industries, and you build a project that is more relevant to today. And it's going to take way more probably capital than we even imagine, way longer. But if we can pull it off, as you say, what is the prize? The prize is what we believe to be the largest and most respected natural resource company in the world. What does that mean? Well, the largest natural resource companies in the world traded hundreds of billions of dollars of valuation. If we think of ExxonMobil and Chevron, and these are massive companies that take you know, hundred years to build. But I really believe that if we are able to pioneer this industry, that's the sort of value that is there. And you start to really challenge a norm and set a new standard for when in this very transparent world we live in, you have visibility on supply chain. When I look at my iPhone that's on this desk right now, we have no idea where the metals came from. And I think about my old days at Starbucks, this fair trade stamp. You know, I think many people are like, oh, yeah, I know fair trade. Okay, what does that mean? It's a standard. Can we see a world where deep green is the standard for acknowledging and respecting all stakeholders as opposed to just worrying about shareholder profit? And, and I, again, one of these things I learned at, at, at Harvard, which was an incredible three weeks I spent, was the art of business is actually earning a profit, a, sorry, a decent profit decently. Okay? So I look at Deep Green. That's a business I want to be a part of. That's a business I want to try to achieve, at, at, achieve at building because it's worrying about all stakeholders. And I think we can still build a company that earns a decent profit decently. And where are you guys in that process now? You're still private at this point, right? Yeah, we're still private, and um, there's no ambition to take it public. Uh, we did actually try to take it public um, last year and, and, and uh, yeah, about a year and a half ago and, and learned a lesson that $20 million for such a grand idea in small cap markets wasn't the right fit. It was kind of fitting a, a square peg in a round hole, and um, we decided to just put more money up personally, and some of our friends put up money, and where it is in the process now um, we just finished earlier this year um, a updated uh, cruise, which gave us more information. 
And we're just advancing it along from PEA stage to pre-feasibility stage. That budget is around 100 to $200 million. Um, and then I think once we have the pre-feasibility or the feasibility, I believe that there's going to be a lineup out the door of potential partners, whether it's industry partners in mining and oil and gas or partners like um, uh, downstream partners that are producing products that need secure supply, worry about the supply chain. All these things are happening in other industries. This is called the trend that I'm seeing and I'm, and I'm listening to from a lot of my friends that are CEOs of other companies. It's going to come to the mining industry. It's just a matter of when. So can we be part of that? This is, it's happening. There's no, like the trend is there. So um, the art of now building deep green is how to raise enough capital at great valuations to protect shareholders. It's going to happen. It's just a matter of how. Okay. What else are you guys working on that we should know about? Um, we just recently uh, launched um, Thunderbird Films, mm-hmm. which uh, I'm definitely not the right person to talk about the media business. <laughs> um, but I've joined the board. I love the management team. Jennifer McCarran's the CEO. She's an incredible CEO. And what, what do I look for in a, in a CEO? She's respected by her employees. She's respected by the board. She's respected by her customers, Netflix and Amazon. I've, I've been privy to some emails that... They just love her and they and they and they they get behind her like I saw that I was able to harness in lithium X. Um, she's very ambitious and it's a company that is very financially stable and and performing extremely well at a very reasonable market cap. Um, and it gives me a lot of the feelings of, of how we started lithium X. Really tight share structure, really generous valuation to the investors um, in terms of valuation in, in my perspective. Great management team, great board, and in a space that's building like crazy. The content space is very real, and it's building at double-digit CAGR growth. And um, the customers that we're dealing with are the biggest customers of in the world of content buying. So um, I think that's an awesome, awesome company. Um, we have some pretty big gold exposure, which has been very tough, but um, still very large shareholders of uh, Fiore Gold. Um, and they're doing a great job there. It's just, it's been tough. Uh, Leia Gold, Frank's the chairman and a very large shareholder of that. Um, what else are we working on? Um, we're working, um, and we've actually just uh, launched a, a lending business uh, to help um, develop uh, mining assets. So uh, to be an alternative lender uh, when, a, when a CEO is looking for capital, um, as opposed to just looking for equity or commercial debt or a royalty stream. It's really kind of the, the three go-tos right now. Uh, we're, we're trying to sit down with CEOs and really listen to their challenges in a capital-starved environment. And um, whether it's putting together um, uh, convertible debentures or, uh, or senior-secured um, uh, notes or a hedging strategy, uh, we're, we're working on, on that. Um, so... I'd say that's the, the the mining world. And then on the private side, um, uh, Frank and I have been the major investors into uh, a really great success story called Nude Vodka Soda, mm-hmm. um, which has been awesome uh, to for me to, to ride shotgun with the founders there. Yeah. I had one of those the first time last week at a party, actually. And? Good. Yeah, I liked it. I liked it. Cool. And you know what? I didn't expect to like it uh, because years ago, 
some company was doing a whiskey soda. Yeah. And I didn't like it at all. Hmm. Uh, and this is good. And I had the ones that had a, I think like a flavor of some sort in yep. lime or whatnot. Yeah. I, I really enjoyed it. So thank you for saying you've that. You've converted me. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, that was another kind of obvious trend in my mind. When yeah. when when Julius, who I've known since we were teenagers, who's the founder and CEO, incredible young CEO, he uh, he came to me and it was vodka soda in a can, and it was low calorie, yeah. no sugar, flavored. The branding was awesome. Cool name. And you see companies like Perrier coming out with their flavored exactly. soda water. And it's, exactly. a, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. But with vodka. With so vodka. It's better. Yeah, ex- <laughs> exactly. And and everyone's had a girlfriend that only drinks vodka and soda. 100%. And, well, okay, but to that point, agreed. But also guys love it too. So it was like yeah. this product that, you know, my friends and I, when we go to the, when we go to the bar or we, when I was throwing parties, yeah. have a vodka soda. And, uh, and they put into a convenient can, very cool can, built a cool brand. And that's now the most successful ready-to-drink launch. I, 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 I'm going to mess up, but in the last few decades here really? in Canada. Yeah. And we're expanding. We've got um, um, uh, a consultant in Australia right now. We're talking with some of my friends and Frank's friends globally and to get into Brazil, the United States, and into Europe. Jesus. Yeah. I yeah. mean, and that company is not a small company anymore. Like, its financial performance has been incredible. And it's just been fun to um, fun for me to help – a, a friend who I've known since we were teenagers, be a product that's rocked, um, and 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 CC uh, a local success story that I think will be globally recognized in the next few years as a, as a leader in that alternative beverage yeah. space. Any chance you guys can get a gin and soda in the works for me? There? We're working all different <laughs> skiers, so tequila soda, gin and soda, nice. those are all coming. Cool. We want we, new nudes overarching um, again, kind of. Well, mission, and I'm going to butcher it, but is to provide a, a healthier alternative to to having a few drinks. You do a lot of different things. Um, I heard we spoke at a dinner a few weeks ago, and at that dinner, one of the things you said, you know, you when you were young, you had a drive to succeed, a drive to make money. You were very, very much driven for that. Mm-hmm. But you're young, you've made a bunch of money, you've had some success. It sounds like some of your efforts have diverted since then. Uh, and you mentioned philanthropy earlier in this conversation being a big part of Frank's career and Frank's life now. You followed in that path to a degree. Can we talk a little bit about that? The Philippan, Philip, yeah. man, I'm going to butcher this word. <laughs> Philanthropic. <laughs> Philanthropic efforts that you are involved in. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, it's become a bigger part of my life. And I will tell you that, um, admittedly, Two years ago, uh, when Frank started to first talk to me about this, when I was um, coming into the position to be able to give, um, I wasn't that into it. I was still so focused on building Lithium X. I couldn't even think about really anybody else other than providing some capital, um, really helping. I don't know if that makes me a bad person or not, but I just wasn't in that Mm -hmm. mindset. Frank was a, a, a vehicle for me to help give because he thinks about it i'd say about half of his days is, is is how does he give his money away but i was able to experience um going to greece and seeing the refugee crisis hands-on and what does that mean i was there helping build and provide capital for uh refurbishments of of factories into housing for um um these refugees that were in very bad living conditions after being blown out of their their, their homes in syria um but it wasn't 
it wasn't resonating as much. I think timing in life is so important. So what I said to you a week ago, two weeks ago, I actually held an event last night um, for three initiatives that I care about. And and, and my foundation is called Kwai Cole Foundation. It's a personal foundation that um, my family is the main uh, uh, provider of capital for or the only capital provider for. And I'm still learning. But what I'm trying to do, and I've got a partner that, that runs it with me, um, that really goes and bird dogs the opportunities, not unlike you know, kind of a, a, a portfolio manager. Mm-hmm. She goes and finds the opportunities, meets with, with, with different initiatives, and then we decide together where to allocate capital and how do we actually help them with strategy. You know, we, we try to find smaller um, uh, organizations or early stage organizations that maybe fall under the radar um, and try to use maybe my, you know, my platform to, to, to get the word out. So these initiatives vary and they've been a lot of, things that happened personally in my life. Um, my, my father wasn't around much as a teenager. So the boys club network is something that brings, um, mentors in to speak to kids, not kids, um, uh, specifically young males as teenagers in school to learn what it's like to be a good man. You know, what are the principles of being a good man? Tell the story about, about, um, who you are, where you came from, and what do you think makes a good man? And these these young males that might not have father figures in their life or, or, or males that they can look up to and be vulnerable and speak about their emotions, um, they get that opportunity. I'd, uh, another initiative that, that Quiet Cove has been a major funder of is, is something called Backpack Buddies. And I've funded it actually personally um, beforehand, I think almost six years ago now. And this was a, um, or is an initiative that, which is a big concern of mine, is this wealth gap in the world. There's so much concentrated wealth with so few people, and there's a major responsibility of those wealthy people. So how do we teach um, young people in fortunate positions to be compassionate, to give, to understand this, this inequality? And what Emily Ann, who's my partner on Kwai Co Foundation, came up with was uh, a platform where here in Vancouver, um, students in more unfortunate or more and more fortunate positions, um, pack lunches and volunteer their time and learn about childhood hunger for kids that on weekends that are in less fortunate positions that may not have food on weekends actually, um, get to, get to receive lunches. So, okay. um, there's, um, uh, six, uh, pre-packed lunches that go into bags. Um, we drop, we go from the, from the, the uh, schools that are maybe in a more fortunate position or are in more fortunate positions and drop them off at schools that, you know, a lot of these kids live in poverty. Mm-hmm. And, um, I can tell you now that, um, we, we fit, we've gone from 20, uh, lunches a week to now 3000, 3000, just in the Vancouver area, just Vancouver area. And all these, all these bags are, are packed by volunteers and kids. And so they get dropped off on a Friday afternoon exactly. and they take them home with them exactly. at night. Exactly. So that's been really rewarding for me to see that evolution. Have you gotten much feedback from the beneficiaries of this? Yeah, I was out on the road uh, with uh, with them last week. Um, I got feedback directly from teachers, uh, and you could see in the kids' faces. But these these um, these people depend on this program, hmm. you know, and. Um, uh, I haven't. I actually haven't spoken enough myself, but we've got a video that we put together. You, <laughs> you can't imagine the difference this makes. Um, and there's so many, like, I, I, there's so many needs out there. I'm just trying to do my part. So, if any of these these charities 
uh, particularly the backpack one, resonates with the people listening. Is there somewhere they can find more information on that and potentially donate or get involved? I would do it um, probably, and this is an evolution, but um, thanks for asking that. I would follow me on Instagram or go to my website, which is brianpacebrega.com. Uh, and my Instagram handle is Brian Pace Braga. B R. Oh, sorry. We'll put all those in the sure. in the show notes too, so that everyone can find that. Great. And how do they, do they just send you a direct message or an email? And yeah, the direct message is is, uh, is probably actually the best. Okay. Brian, I am cognizant of your time, and I don't want to take up too much more. But is there any message you'd like to leave with listeners before we say goodbye? Uh, anything? Any advice you'd like to leave them with? Anything you think they should know? Anything you think they should check out that you think would add value, um, be of interest, or you'd like them to see? <laughs> I could go on now because <laughs> um, I can't help myself sometimes. I, I, I think that um, oh, I, I think that um, what's helped me get to a, a place in my life, and it, and I'm not. <laughs> it's a lifelong journey of being happy and whole and, and all these things and, and even, you know, performing at a top level. I think the best thing you can do, let's talk about being an investor, is is educate yourself. You know, really take responsibility for yourself and better your your yourself through reading and learning and 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 uh, reflecting, um, going through CDAR filings, especially in this business, reading you know, as, as, as tough as it is, which I've gone through, but reading 43101s, <laughs> you know, something that, that worked really well for me is, is map out a chart. Yeah. Um, just map out a chart and, and see why do, why do prices go up? Why is there act, trading activity at certain times? And, and really understand what your, what business and what speculative, what speculative business you're getting into as opposed to um, going in unarmed. Yeah, and for non-Canadian listeners, a 43101 is a mining technical report. Correct. So that's good advice. And, you know, I just want to echo something you said earlier on that I thought really resonated with me and, and I think a lot of people could learn from would be, you know, don't be afraid of failure. Don't be afraid to put yourself out there. I mean, it sounds like one of the key things that set you apart er- earlier in your career besides knowing what you wanted, which is very hard for most people. Yes, I got very fortunate in being Is there. just being willing to try and put yourself out there and, you know, throw yourself in front of things. Totally. And I think that is probably the biggest limiting factor holding people back from what they want to do. I agree. And I would just caveat that with it's a fine line between that and, and, and recklessness. So mm-hmm. it's it's it and is there I don't have the right definition probably in words. That just happens with time. So I think it's something that um People will always give you a second chance, what I have found, if you um, are able to wear and be honest with a mistake, because we're all humans. We all make mistakes. Every company makes a mistake, but it's really being accountable and, and owning up to it and learning from it. And, um, and to the listeners, there's, there is only a, a handful or two handfuls of, of really successful CEOs in our business, and... I bet if you talk to any of them, which you, you've, you've spoken to a few great yeah. ones, we're all just humans. We've all just made mistakes. Maybe we've just learned a little bit quicker from our mistakes, but we're all just humans. And I think, and I think uh, that goes to something I've said before, that people are very 
they're happy to forgive incompetence, but not malice. Totally. Uh, and to your totally. point, if you go in with good intentions, that's almost half the battle, really. It is. Yeah, I agree completely. All right. Well, I don't think we're going to find a better place to, do, to end it than that. So thank you very much for taking the time to chat today, Brian. My pleasure. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Resource Insider Podcast. If you're interested in getting access to the biggest deals and best opportunities in the mining and metals industry, go to capitalistexploits.at and sign up for Resource Insider now.